Welcome to this pop-up podcast series, Magic and Mayhem, Discover the Secrets to Creating Magnificent Books for Kids and Teens, with the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses. I'm Valerie Koo. I'm founder of the Australian Writers' Centre, and through this series, I have the pleasure of bringing you a curated group of wonderful authors who all specialise in writing for children. You may have heard of them first on our regular podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer. As this pop-up series rolls out, you'll hear from authors who specialise in picture books, then we're going to go through authors in chapter books, writers of middle grade fiction, and then young adult books. And then you'll hear from publishers of children's books, so you'll get a wonderful overview of the industry. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested in writing for one or several of those age groups. But I really encourage you to listen to all of the episodes, regardless of age group, because you're going to discover ideas and and techniques and hacks that you can apply to your own creative process from all of them. Andy Griffiths is one of Australia's best-loved children's authors. He has more than 30 books, including the hugely successful Treehouse series with, uh, with illustrator Terry Denton and The Bum Books. Yes, The Bum Books. It's this irreverence that has defined Andy's success. Like a lot of kids' authors, Andy has always loved making people laugh. He started writing because the kids he was teaching in high school wanted something funny to read. As you'll hear, he is giving kids exactly what they want. Sometimes children's authors feel that they have to be educational or sweet. Andy proves that this is far from true. He has found his own unique style and it has clearly resonated with young readers all over the world. Oh, and he was also in several rock bands. (laughs) Do you love the idea of writing a chapter book series just like Andy? your own treehouse series. If you're keen to discover your own unique style and explore the world of children's fiction, be sure to check out the course Writing Chapter Books for Six to Nine-Year-Olds at the Australian Writers' Centre. It's the ideal course for anyone who would love to write entertaining stories just like Andy. Go to writerscentre.com.au slash chapter. That's writerscentre.com.au slash chapter. Now, in this interview, Andy chats with Alison Tate from the Australian Writers' Centre and shares his thoughts on experimentation, the importance of staying true to yourself, and how the word bum is always funny. Andy Griffiths is one of Australia's most popular children's authors, best known for the Treehouse series, The Just Books, and my personal favourite, The Day My Bum Went Psycho. Over the last 20 years, Andy's books have been New York Times bestsellers, adapted for the stage and television, and won more than 50 Australian Children's Choice and other awards. Andy is an ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and the Pajama Foundation, and the 65-storey treehouse will hit the shelves on the 12th of August 2015, to the great anticipation of children everywhere. So welcome, Andy, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Um, okay, so I've, I've, in my excellent researching, have been through your website, which is, was um, highly entertaining. Um, but according to your bio, you started writing at the age of six. And then yep. you published yep. your first book, Just Tricking, about 30 years later. So I feel like we need to have a little chat about what happened in the intervening years. <laughs> the lost years. <laughs> the lost years. <laughs> what did you do in all that time? I saw what? that there was like punk rock band singing involved. 
Yeah, well, I'd always been writing, and my dad's got and mum have stuff going right back to about the age of six, which was kind of mischievous and silly and designed to get a raise out of people even back then. <laughs> and I kept that up all through school, mainly for the benefit of my friends. I loved making them laugh or groan or, you know, shock them in some way. Um, and that that uh, dovetailed really nicely with um, uh, my discovery of Alice Cooper um, in his shock rock period and uh, and then punk rock. And and I just found it very inspiring and amusing to, to create songs. And eventually we put together a joke band and um, did a concert for the school, which was very, very well received. What was the name of the band, Andy? I need to know. Um, well, the first one was called Silver Cylinder, after uh, my friend's brother's surfboard-making company in, okay. in his garage. And then it turned into Unborn Babies. That oh. was the punk, the punk phase. Right. And then, uh, then the art rock phase was Gothic Farmyard. Gothic Farmyard. Yeah. Oh, I like then, that. That's lovely. Then um, and then I realised after a number of years of crafting, I crafted the lyrics. I um, I was the vocalist and learned how to perform them and hold the attention of an audience. But at the same time, I was aware that my real interest was was writing, and I was doing a Bachelor of Arts um, course, a literature degree at university, and eventually that led me into teaching. So I became a high school English teacher at the same time as really starting to read how to write books and take courses and develop what was a pretty raw talent into something I could control a little better. And at the same time, discovered all these kids in early high school who wanted something funny to read but couldn't find it on the library shelves. Okay. So I started doing exactly what I'd done for my friends at school and writing little pieces for them, you know, involving runaway bums and <laughs> things that made them laugh and gasp and and go, wow, writing is fun, can we do some of that? And, uh, and so then I began self-publishing collections of their work and then collections of my work just with the photocopier and staples and scissors and... Uh, <laughs> and I, real self-publishing. Yeah, and, and I just thought, oh, I'd love doing this and so eventually left teaching to study writing and editing full-time. And um, I, at the same time, I'd, get, I'd saved up half my pay for about three years. So I had a little grant that got me through two years okay. of um, just clinging to the rock face, just trying to find where my place was and what my style was. And at the beginning, it wasn't necessarily my aim to be a comedy writer, it was to be a serious writer, oh. you know, and um, and I thought, oh, well, this comedy stuff's all very well, but, you know, you really have to write literary short stories to get people to take you seriously. And and I could, I did that, but my heart wasn't in it, and there was always this lunatic tone that was coming through and breaking and <laughs> uh, wrecking everything that I tried to do. <laughs> and, and at that point, I went, yeah, I get it, I'm... <laughs> I'm a, um, a stirrer and a comedian at heart and someone who just likes, um, enter, you know, in, in its purest form, entertaining my reader. So uh, so that was kind of news to me after trying lots of different 
styles. It's really interesting, isn't it? That, but you were still, you know, writing those funny little stories, but it never occurred to you that that they were actually your thing because that's no. not what writing was. Is that what it is? You that's weren't exactly. a writer with a capital W if you yeah, were writing was, that kind of stuff. It was too obvious. It was so much in front of my face, I couldn't see it. Isn't that and, interesting? And I think this is the great battle for an emerging writer is to somehow be able to be aware of what other people are doing, but then, simul- and because you always feel that that's the proper stuff. It mm. must be. It's getting published. Mm. And the stuff that you're doing almost feels so idiosyncratic, so kind of just oddly you, that you think, well, this, this can't be real stuff. Mm. And yet I think that's what we're all craving as, as readers is for someone to be utterly themselves in, that, in, in the, the fiction. And the tendency is to copy other people and to sound like, for me, it was Raymond Carver. You know? Oh, right. I, I loved Raymond Carver. I discovered him and then started realising that all my stories were sounding a little Raymond Carverish. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, he's, he's a good model. Yeah, um, yeah, really. But at a certain point, you have to go, right, I've learned how to write short sentences and I've learned how to, you know, explore a moment in great detail. But now how do I apply that to what's coming out of me? Do you so, still have uh, those literary short stories that you wrote? Are they still, uh, you know, in a drawer somewhere? Uh, they're probably in, yeah, locked away in a in a deep, dark suitcase. <laughs> In a vault. <laughs> I, I, I have kept a lot of stuff because I am fascinated with the process of how people find their voice. Mm. And I love, you know, looking at the career of someone like David Bowie, mm. who um, in his early years was casting around trying to find where he fit in. And he did some really quite different stuff to what we know him for now. Mm. But he would be he'd try it out. No, that's not working. Try this out. No, it's not working. Try a little song about being an astronaut in a in a <laughs> rocket that can't get back to Earth. Ah, yeah, that's the one that's that the everyone's one. waiting for. But but you can see he didn't know. And um, so yeah, I, I encourage a, a spirit of being experimental in your approach and and trying everything. See what works, and then see what feels comfortable and then committing to that. Do you think then that's why, you know, in 1997, you know, a publisher said yes to just tricking? Is that Was it because you, you'd you actually just followed your heart and your voice at that point? Yeah, by that stage I'd got it, but I'd started in 1987, mm. uh, you know, doing the courses, reading the books and putting the practice in. I discovered a book called Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg, who um, was very keen on writers putting the, the hours in and putting right. the practice in. Yeah. And she, she gave a method of timed writing practice, which was to write nonstop any, on any subject um, without editing, without thinking, without trying to control it. Just get words on the page for a five-minute period and then repeat it again and again and again. And that, that allows you to access your subconscious without the editing function getting in the way, going, well, that's a bit silly or that's a bit rude or that's not appropriate or as if bums could grow arms and legs, you know, let's, 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 let's get onto something a bit more realistic. Um, you need to escape that voice in the, in, when you're getting the raw material on the page. It, you bring it in later to edit what you've done and to, to tidy it up. 
but too often it's fused at the creation stage. So people are very timid and very restricted in what they feel they can write. Mm. Um, and Natalie Goldberg, you know, I recommend her to everyone. Mm. Uh, the first book, Writing Down the Bones, is an absolute goldmine. And it's it's like foot, footy training or soccer training or netball training. You don't just play the game. You actually spend a number of nights each week practicing your skills mm. and that's that's crucial I think and it was crucial for me to just learn how to develop and be comfortable with um, putting thoughts into words and also comfortable with my own internal um, landscape of ideas and um, psychology so that you, you can't you, you, you end up not being able to be shocked by anything that comes up are you still writing like that? Do you still write that stream, like almost stream of consciousness to start with and just see what happens? Or do you, are you a little bit more planned with it these days? Uh, I, I use it. I will use that to begin with. I'll go into a very free writing phase where I'm not, I, I don't know where it's going. And then I, I can switch between the modes pretty quickly now and, and know exactly which mode I'm in. Um, so yeah, I, I still use the free writing. Um, it can be in the form of a list, uh, making a list of say 50 new levels for the treehouse, and I've got to get it done in half an hour. And so then you'll just be pulling anything out of the air. Most 80% of it will be garbage, but but within that craziness, there'll be 10% that's potentially usable and 1% that's definitely usable. But you don't get the 1% unless you put in, you know, the whole 100%. So mm. It's a very wasteful, slow process, but uh, it just requires hours and hours. Um, and, and But then you get those random things that you wonder how, the, how you ever got them. And those random, I mean, that's the thing about, because I've read many of your books over the last few years. I've got two boys, 11 and 8, so we have quite the collection. So, you know, there is a randomness from an adult perspective, a randomness to the, you know, I mean, obviously the stories are cohesive and Andy does this and all that sort of thing. But, you know, like the, the I, I just sit there and go, where did that come from? Why would you, where would you have even had the thought to write that story? Are you, I mean, do you know it's funny when you write it immediately? Like, do you know that kids will like it when you're writing it? Or is it something that you don't necessarily know until you put it out? Um, these days I can make a pretty reasonable prediction right. uh, in the early days I didn't necessarily know it was funny and I get the funny effects by actually just starting with a premise that's a little absurd mm. um, like um, a bum that can detach itself and run away from the owner now that's that's a funny premise but then I follow it absolutely logically I go right that's that's what's happened what would you do mm. if your dog ran away you'd ring the dog catcher mm. so if your bum ran away you'd ring the bum catcher of course you and can. and then I think then I use a, a structured planning process where I go what's the worst thing that could happen next your your bum has gassed the bum catcher um, how would you solve that the bum catcher with his dying gasp gives you the bum catching equipment says you've got to catch it <laughs> And, you, and then you go, no, no, I can't. I don't, don't know how to do this. And then he dies, and then you've got to do it. Right. So I'm actually following. I'm I'm utterly ruthlessly logical, and 
I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just trying to solve a series of increasingly absurd problems. And then I just trust that that's going to be engaging and amusing for the reader. Well, it's kind of funny just thinking about it. I, I just, I mean, I just had this vision of you going to your publisher and saying, look, I've written this book. It's called The Day My Bum Went Psycho. What do you reckon? Um, <laughs> was there initial resist? I mean, were parents and teachers initially resistant to that kind of stuff? And like, did your publisher go, are you mental? Like what, what sort of response do you get when you send that stuff, <laughs> when you send that stuff in? Well, uh, uh, the, to begin with, um, I've always gone with Tim Winton's analysis of writing for children, how it's a little more complex because you can't just write to the child. Uh, um, in, in normal writing, it's you who, have, who writes a story that you like yeah. to the audience you think would like it. Yeah. Um, and that's a straight transmission. But to get to a child, you have to go through gatekeepers, mm -hmm. librarians, teachers, mm -hmm. parents. And what a parent finds amusing is not necessarily what the kid finds amusing and vice versa. So you need to somehow get the, um, the craziness and sometimes the rudeness across in a way that doesn't offend the older readers um, and is acceptable. So there's quite a little balancing act that a lot of people are not aware of and it's why you can't just fill a book with poo and bum and... <laughs> Stuff because as adults we just go, oh, this is disgusting. I don't, I don't want to read this. Um, so, so there's that. And I was very careful for the first four books, just tricking, just annoying, just stupid and just crazy, to utterly take that into account. Right. But I was increasingly meeting librarians who said, I had to take your book off the shelf oh. because a parent complained that, you know, the boy was disrespectful to someone and so I had to take it out of out of circulation and I was I was outraged. Mm. I just thought, how could one parent control what happens in your entire library? And so I I became increasingly rebellious and uh and also at the same time the kids would say, What book are you gonna write next? And I would just for jokes say, I'm gonna write a serious book. And they'd all go, oh, and I'd go, yeah, well, you know, life's not all fun. Uh, this one's called the, the Day My Bum Went Psycho. And then they would laugh because they realised I'd taken them in. And um, that was just a joke for a number of years. And then I thought, wow, I should really write this. And the publisher, was, the publisher said, are you ever going to actually write that? And I said, well, yeah, it'd be kind of fun. And then I could wave it at all the librarians and they and and every get everyone saying the word bum oh, over and over and over. Because bum's a funny word. It bum's is, a funny and word. Yeah. and that's what I knew from my research of being a visiting writer in schools that this this had a power because it's it's you know there's embarrassment and um, um, tension associated with it because it's an unpredictable part of your body. And kids often get into trouble for what their bum does. So I just thought, what's the worst thing your bum could do? Is jump off your body and try to take over the world. <laughs> this um, is possibly the best conversation I've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all utterly logical to me. Absolutely, but, um, yeah. It, but it's based on emotional truth, um, and the kids. That's why it, it is so funny because. Kids have this embarrassment around it, and often when we're embarrassed, we release that tension by laughter. So I thought, let's put let's put bums at the centre of a plot, uh, an action thriller, mm. 
and the bad guys are the bums, and that's and we just tell it straight. And uh, that's what I did. Um, were you I, laughing while you were writing it, or were you actually just intensely, seriously, okay, uh, if my mum no, did this, I would do that? Totally, I'm laughing and I'm just delighting in, could I get away with this? Why not? You know, and, <laughs> and, and just, like, how gross can I make this? Oh, that's pretty gross. What if I did that? And, you know, and they're on top of the stench gant or the great unwiped bum, and they have to get to the the um, brown sea or something. And then I thought, how had a, had a, oh, well, he'd have a wart, he'd have a pimple on top, and they sit on the pimple and then burst it and go flying over the forest and um, oh, into yeah. the ocean. And, and it's, just, it's utterly gross, but it's so ridiculous that you, your only option really is to laugh. Um, and luckily everyone did. Well, not everyone, but, um, yeah, I just wanted to move us on from trying to be so precious with children's books. Meanwhile, movies, television, video games, computer games, are all, they've got, they can do anything they want. Mm. And, and books were just looking like these tired, precious little polite things that everyone wanted everything to be nice and no one, you know, doing anything offensive. And I was, that was utterly unlike my experience of reading as a child. Mm which was books were a wild playground where you confronted the unacceptable and the, um, the taboo and the slightly scary. And, um, you know, The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss is about a cat that comes in when the mother goes out and uh, attempts to wreck the house. Mm. You know, it's, it's not pretty or polite. And I just felt we'd got to this weird place where books were not keeping pace with where children were at do you think that adults just sometimes take the whole like they just take reading too seriously is that part of the problem yeah um and they the, the main problem adults have have had with my books and in in books in general is thinking that if a child reads about a character who transgresses the bounds of politeness or common sense that the child's reader is not sufficiently well-developed enough to tell the difference between um, that and real life. And they'll think that you're giving them tacit permission to use these words or to emulate the behaviour of the out-of-control kid that I love writing about. Um, Whereas my experience was, of course they know the difference. And that's why this is amusing and a fun imaginative exercise. What happens when you don't... um, look both ways when you cross the road. Uh, you know, the, this was fundamental to my understanding of reading. That's why I loved it. Mm. And, um, and I tell you, over the years, people realised, oh, the kids know this is a game, and this is fine. And the worst effect that it was having was making them want to read. Mm. But adults were, you know, I was going to say delightfully slow in, <laughs> in realising this. And the bad book got me into a lot of trouble. Everyone said, you're teaching children to be bad. And I go, no, the kids know all the rules. They, they don't need anyone telling them what's what's appropriate. But they love to see kids uh, disobeying those rules. Mm. And um, So, yeah, that's that was the main argument I used to have. But the Treehouse series actually takes all of those experiments and puts it in a very... 
accessible package for both children and adults. So Which is why it's been so successful, you think? I think so. And yep. because we did all the experiments, you know, we, I, I did all the gross-out humour in the bums. I mean, there was four books worth of that mm. until I finally got to the end of it and went, right, yes, I've explored gross-out humour to its maximum. Do you think um, the bummer saw book was the zenith yeah. of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the bummer saw book... Uh, in which, for those uninitiated, about 80, <laughs> 80 bummersaurs, including the Tyrannosaurus rex and <laughs> Triceratops, are all scientifically illustrated and, yes. and explained. But you'll see that starts looking like the Treehouse book. Mm. It's heavily illustrated. The text is much shorter and more playful. And uh, we were just wor working towards it. The bad book explored all the taboo humour but it, it hammered out the form of how we could work it to, to do a longer narrative. So there's nothing that, that I have done in the past that was wasted yeah. uh, in the discovery that um, the treehouse could tell a long, complex narrative um, using pictures as the um, replacement for long, boring descriptions and, uh, and make it accessible to, a to an emerging reader to a very good reader, can go back and find a lot of stuff in there. So I should um, probably explain at this point that the we is you and, and Terry Denton. When did you guys yep. actually start working together? We started working in 1993 oh. when he, he was assigned to the very first book I had, which was a creative writing textbook. Right. Um, and the publisher put us together. Uh, we hadn't met, but I saw what he'd done and just realised that there was a kindred spirit here. Uh, a lover of anarchy and wild freedom was coming out of his drawing. And he eventually met, uh, we eventually met on the school kind of circuit, entertaining kids in, in schools, and he offered to illustrate anything further that I did, Great. which was enormously helpful because publishers were still very nervous of me at, at that point. They didn't mm -hmm. really understand the, the chaotic nature of the humour. Um, but having Terry, who was um, an established illustrator um, at that point, um, made it made me a safer bet for the eventual Brave publisher who published Just Tricking at the end of a 10-year kind of apprenticeship for, yes. for me. So it came out fully formed after 10 years of, wow. of um, constant experimentation. Just trying to find the exact right voice and style that would allow me to be completely natural in the fiction. And and when you're completely yourself, I think the reader just believes you. Yes. Um, and that's what that's what it's about. You're trying to get the reader to completely believe in this fictional world that you're you're setting up. And um, and with the Treehouse, I think more than any other book or series the children believe that that world exists even after they've stopped reading the book. Mm. They, they imagine that me and Terry and Jill are all <laughs> madly <laughs> trying to get another book together, which is, you know, not that far from the truth. So do you work together right from the inception of a story, like you and Terry, or do you write words and then convene? Or I mean, how, do you, how does that process work? No, I, I have a rough outline, an idea, which I don't develop very far at all, and then I have a number of sessions with Terry 
where I sort of tell him the idea and he starts doing little cartoon strips to illustrate scenes and passages of action. And as he does that, I start to um, develop my idea so that it's my idea is developing from his input and then my further developments influence his further right. illustrations. So that was our aim back in 2003 when we started The Bad Book. That was, that was the first book that we started playing with this idea of actually writing and drawing together yeah. rather than separate. And um, so there'll be, that's probably about two weeks of storyboarding. And then I get to, uh, I bring all that back to my wife, Jill, who's an editor. And we then probably put two or three months of very hard work uh, structuring it all into a, a sequential narrative wow. using, using the pictures in a cut and paste sort of method. Mm. Um, and then we, we, we're telling each other the story really using those pictures and my, my ever increasing words and we keep finding new possibilities. And now Terry may now come drop in for a day and we'll say, look, we've got this idea for a section. Can you draw us some pictures or can you draw a character? We, we don't know what this character's going to look like. And then he might do 20 versions of a character. Wow. And we'll, uh, I'll find one and I'll go, that's, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And then that helps me, that helps me to know what to write and wow. how to refine it. So it's, uh, it's back and forth for a, an entire year. Wow. So it's very complex and very collaborative to come out with something that the children read so easily, isn't it? Like it's yeah. a, they yeah. always say that, you know, easy reading is damn hard writing. It sounds like that would be the case. Yeah, and it's, it's not unpleasurable. I mean, it's, it's like working out a vast crossword puzzle or something. It's, it's very, um, it's like problem solving nonstop. Um, but yeah, Jill is crucial. She's she's the editor. Yeah. Um, she tells us when we're getting too far down the rabbit hole of conceptual <laughs> humour. Right. Um, she brings us back to characters and voices and conversations uh, because left to our own devices, we can do you know two dozen pages of a dog barking. <laughs> um, <laughs> conceptually, very funny. And she might go, you know, really, 12 pages? And I, she said, I think two would be better. And I go, no, 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 six, six. And we'll, we'll agree on four. So, <laughs> um, so she's crucial in making sure that we're keeping um, connected to a wider audience and, and also, of course, a female audience because uh, I'm quite passionate about the books not being for boys. Right, or, okay. Or, um, or excluding girls in any way. And, and our readership has always been 50% female. Oh, that's brilliant. But, uh, there is stuff that appeals to boys. Yes. But it, it doesn't exclude the girls. And that's what Jill is a character in the book who is mixing it up uh, and as brave and as action-based as, as the boys. Excellent. All right, so in your FAQ section, which I read with great interest, you... Um, you said that you get a rush of ideas for a new book as soon as you finish one. Has there ever been a time when that wasn't the case? Like, have you ever experienced writer's block in any sort of way? Not really because of the Natalie Goldberg timed writing practice method. Oh, of um, course. If you just 
set the timer and start writing, something is going to happen within five minutes, within ten, a half an hour or an hour. You, it's literally cannot fail to find something after that, after just an hour. Right. Um, the I do remember we'd done the bad book, which is a collection of rhymes and poems and songs and cartoons that are all relentlessly exploring the idea of kids being bad. Right. And the opposite to good. This happens in all of those. And then we did the very bad book, and the kids loved that one. And then we thought, well, it might be time to do the very, very bad book. <laughs> and um, Terry came along. We we went away for a week, and we know to a beach house down in um, on the outside of Wilson's Promontory National Park in Victoria. Yeah. And we know if we set aside a Monday to Friday, we've got five days. We, we something has got to happen in those five days, because right. you'd feel really bad coming back with nothing. <laughs> So we just sit down. We don't have a real idea, and I say, right, what, what can we? What haven't we done in the previous bad books that we can do? And he showed me a collage picture of a tiny little cartoon bird that he'd done holding a photograph of an enormous gun, mm. and it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> the cutest little bird, the most dangerous-looking gun, and I was like, well, you've you've gazumped us there. We can't go beyond that for badness. Um, and I said, oh, maybe we'll... So we were sort of stuck. and We didn't want to repeat ourselves, but we wanted to keep going. And then I said, maybe if we bring Andy and Terry in uh, ourselves as the hosts of the bad book, yeah. we can we can be bad hosts and bad things can be happening to us while we're telling the bad stories. So this was seemed promising. And I said, we'd probably live in somewhere like a treehouse, really cool. <laughs> Um, you know, with a tank full of bowling, a bowling alley and a tank full of man-eating sharks. So can you draw something like that? And meanwhile, I'll start working on, you know, how we'll approach the reader. And, um, and over two or three hours that afternoon, he drew what became the cover of the 13-story treehouse. Because wow. he added all this other stuff and, and made it totally convincing. And I said, I didn't know you could draw like that. And he said, oh, yeah, I used to do architecture at university before I dropped out. So um, I said, that world that you've created in the treehouse is is what we need to write about. That's that's more interesting to me than doing another bad book. Yeah. And I said, we'll be in it and we'll be trying to write our book and we won't be able to write the book because we're getting distracted by all the stuff in the treehouse. So that was that was the how that happened. So from the writer's block yeah, of not, not being able to do the very, very bad book, something far greater came. And perhaps we couldn't do the very, very bad book because we'd, we'd worked it out in a sense. We'd explored the whole idea. Mm. Um, and I think that's very important that a creative project should be something that you don't quite understand. You don't quite know how it's going to come out. And it's in the process of trying to wrestle with it and bring it under control that the creativity actually happens. So um, so you're up to 65 stories. How many stories do you think this treehouse has got in it? Well, each time I, as I say, each time I finish a book, another area becomes apparent that, that we haven't explored. And the 65 was exploring what a number of people, adults have said at these talks. I said, do you have a permit for this treehouse? 
and they're trying to be funny, but I'm I'm like, actually, that's a really good question. And yeah. Most likely, I would have given Terry some money to go get a permit. Yeah. And he would have traded it for something <laughs> stupid, and then um, then we don't have a permit, and that obviously necessitates a visit from a safety inspector, a permit guy. Fantastic. Um, inspector Bubble Wrap comes and looks at it and goes, I've got to show, I've got to demolish this tree house. It's totally unsafe. And then they have to figure out how they're going to get the permit, which is done by Terry creating a time machine out of a rubbish bin oh, and they go back in time to get the permit oh, that right. he was supposed to get six and a half years ago. <laughs> but instead they go 650 million years back into the past. Oh, and, uh, and go bouncing all over history because oh, the time fantastic. machine doesn't work properly. <laughs> so, um, so that's that's that one. And then a lot of kids are asking about a movie. Oh yeah. And um, if, you know, part of the whole appeal of this book is that it's it's happening in your head, mm. and that the treehouse doesn't have to be worked out logically. No. Because it changes shape every book. Um, so it's nothing that we're we're. Um, wanting to happen anytime soon right but that that book will be about the movie okay yeah. All right. the disastrous attempts of a hollywood producer to make a movie did so, you read yeah, a lot of um enid blyton when you were a kid totally yeah. I was, I <laughs> getting far nothing, away tree vibes <laughs> nothing but enid blyton from the age of about eight to eleven right because she was the only one i could trust to get the story started fast no moralizing a world of of adventure and um, pleasure and danger all mixed in. And kids on their own always. Kids on their own yeah. having adventures. Yeah. And, um, yeah, The Faraway Tree was uh, a huge influence on, on me and in particular The Treehouse. But not wasn't copying anything. I was just trying to um, be true to the feeling of infinite um, novelty that I would get from reading that book. Yeah, yeah. So and that's true. why the tree just keeps extending endlessly. And, and and to answer your question, no, I don't know when the Treehouse series will end. No. But, um, as long as there's life and something new to explore, it'll it'll keep going. But oh, judging so by the interest, I mean, there's you know they're lining up out the front of bookshops for it when it comes out. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not sure they'll let us stop for. For at least a few more books. No, definitely. All right, just to change the subject then, um, a subject that comes up a lot with authors these days is this business of, you know, creating an author platform and a brand. And, I mean, obviously you've been writing and, you know, very consistently in a similar, you know, vein, uh, voice, all that for, for many years. But I also know that you're on Twitter and you have a Facebook page and stuff. So you obviously, like, do give a nod to that. Do you put a conscious effort into into this business of an author platform? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Um, well, you said it just then. I give a nod to it. Right. Um, and it is important and, and can be... I always saw... See, I was writing pre-internet. Yeah. Um, and as that came in, I saw websites as a tremendous opportunity to promote books yeah. and for kids to find out about new books. Yeah. So I was an early adopter of that. And I had my website up and all the school project information on the on the website. Yeah. Because you used to get a lot of letters yeah. wanting, you know, date of birth, place, all that. Oh yeah. Um, but I always saw it. This is this is great. We can now find out about books and authors faster than ever. Um, 
the social media aspect I'm less excited about because a book for me is really a, a tweet that mm. takes a year to write. Mm. And so books have always been connecting with a larger audience, but I, I much prefer putting a lot of work into things, and mm. whereas Twitter is off, off flying off the top of your head. So uh, do you think... Ideally. Um, so I think it's important, but it's important not to get the cart before the horse in this um, mm. um, respect. I think the work really has to go into the books and reading. And where I see the danger of Twitter and Facebook is that it it's another distraction mm. that can, can take you away from, say, re, re-reading one of your favourite books, which will inspire you to write a much better book. Um, but if you're too busy tweeting back and forth at this and that, um, you don't you're not going deep. No. Yeah, so that's I, I use it at arm's distance and okay. for very specific book promotion purposes. So what do you think then is the best way like for a children's author these days to build their profile? Like is it do you need to do is it school visits? Is that the, the way forward? I do think there's no substitute for having a live audience. Yeah in front of you and that can be as few as you know half a dozen kids um, to read them a story and then to observe them very closely and see if they're responding to what you're writing Mm. Uh, a lot of writers are scared of that because it's kind of you putting yourself out there and what if it fails Mm. but I would rather it fail in front of six kids than work on an entire book and then put it out and find no one's very interested Mm. so I've always totally believed in in getting an audience at the right time and and testing it out and then adjusting it and going, you know, I seemed a bit bored at that, that introduction. What if I get rid of the introduction and start with something that just grabs them straight away? You only learn that um, in front of an audience. Mm. Um, unless you're a literary writer who's not terribly concerned about that. Mm. That's a different type of writing. But, yeah, for me it's always been a conversation and a conversation involves two people, not just just you. Talking at them. Talking at them, which is a a very common mistake of many children's books that are actually published. Okay. All right, so then um, that seems like an opportune moment for me to throw in the top three tips for aspiring authors question. What would your top three tips for aspiring authors be? Um, ooh, only three. Yeah, only, um, yeah, I know, it's hard, isn't it? Just, just the three. Well, I am a big believer in, in the timed writing practice in putting the hours in. Right. <clears throat> so um, writing for at least half an hour to an hour a day. Right. Now, that practice can start with just five minutes a day. Mm. That's how I started trying to fill up two pages of an exercise book. Um, that was my basic daily commitment. And that very quickly I strengthened and found much more to write about until it was 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So you build up. But without that constant practice that's not involved in creating a story but just exploring yourself, um, I think that is, that is really useful. Um, a reading, re rereading your favourite books, the things that really inspire you, even if they're not 
um, acceptable literary classics um, such as Enid Blyton or my collection of horror comics that I've still got from when I was 10. Right. I get so much delight and inspiration from those. Right. And, and that delight and inspiration goes directly into what I'm writing. So you've got to read and you've got to keep discovering new stuff and um, that's, that's like the compost that, that enriches anything that you do. Um, and I guess uh, from what we've talked about, finding an audience, right. <clears throat> testing your stuff on an actual uh, group of people, if it's kids, that you're writing for, then yeah. kids is a good one. Um, but I did a lot of spoken word readings for uh, you know twenty for adults in the early days, and that it, that taught me a lot too right. about where you could take an audience and uh, what you could do to them. And taught me that I was not a, a particularly good at being serious, but I loved <laughs> making them laugh. Um, that's really valuable information for helping you to to decide who you are as a writer and, and what you'd like to achieve. Yeah. All right. Well, those are excellent tips. Thank you so yeah. much, Andy. And thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm sure that our listeners will have learned a lot and I'm sure that our conversation about bums will have no doubt entertained them because really, I just don't think there's enough bums in the world. Um, so, yeah. So, thank you very much and uh, really good luck with the 65-storey treehouse. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, and I'm the internationally published best-selling author of two epic adventure series, The Mapmaker Chronicles and The Adaban Cipher. My books are available in Australia, the US, the UK and other territories, and are perfect for young readers aged nine or older. Find out more about me and my books at alisontate.com. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. I was really struck in that interview on how Andy finds a balance between being silly and serious. On the one hand, he wants to push boundaries and make kids laugh, but he never does it carelessly. He always knows who his readers are and who the gatekeepers are. As he says about his Treehouse series, he takes all those experiments and puts it in a package that's accessible to both kids and adults. He also takes his writing seriously in that he makes time for it every day. As we all know, you have to get the words down. Timed practices force you to make that time and also help you to prevent writer's block. And it obviously works for him. When we recorded that interview, Andy had just released The 65-Story Treehouse. Since then, he's released three more books in the series and The Treehouse is up to 104 stories. If you're finding it hard to make time for writing, try doing the timed practices that Andy recommends. And like Andy, we also highly recommend Natalie Goldberg's book, Writing Down the Bones. Good luck and happy writing. You've been listening to Magic and Mayhem with the Australian Writers' Centre. For wonderful writing tips and short story competitions and brilliant courses that really do change people's lives, join our wonderful and friendly writing community. The best first step is just to go to writerscentre.com.au and sign up to our weekly newsletter. That's writerscentre.com.au.